Corey gone? Because I wanted to open with a quote from a beer can. (coughs) (laughs) Fremont Brewing makes this Imperial IPA called The Sister. Yeah. Anyway, in the back of the can, it says, never let an angry sister brush your hair. Now, I have three daughters, and I know that's a true statement. Um, Siblings have a way of knowing which buttons to push and are versed in the arts of knowing one another. Can I get an amen? Any siblings out there? Yeah. But there's another quote I think Fremont could have put on their beer can that would be equally true in my experience. I pity the fool who messes with my sister. See, siblings may annoy and nag and fight each other, but they are often quick to come to each other's defense because you don't mess with family. Now, in the past couple of sermons, we've been walking through the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and in that chapter, Paul is addressing an issue that he's heard through the grapevine, namely that there was a man who was a member of the congregation who was sleeping with his stepmother right under the nose of his father, who was still alive and part of the community. As we walked through that chapter, we discovered, to my surprise, and maybe to yours too, that Paul actually spent very little time addressing that particular man and that particular sin. Uh, Instead, he was absolutely flabbergasted that the congregation was allowing this to take place in their community. They weren't saying anything about it. By allowing this evil to coexist uncontested in the church, it threatens to destroy their community. So Paul makes it clear that the church is to hold each other accountable for their actions, but not to judge outsiders. That's God's job. He says we have really nothing to do with judging outsiders. Our job, though, is to have the standard of accountability inside the congregation. So with that in mind, he now addresses another case. It has come to Paul's attention that two members of that congregation have taken each other to court. Again, as we read this text, let's pay attention to how how Paul focuses more intently on the congregation, on the church, than he does about these two dudes who are squabbling in court. Okay, that's the bigger picture. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 1. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is none among you, not one wise person, who will be able to decide between his brothers and sisters? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, It's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brothers and sisters. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I gotta admit, this passage raises so many questions and reactions. Um, just the ones off the top of my head don't ever go to court? What do you mean that one day we'll judge the world? 
judge angels. I don't remember that one being in Scripture. And what do we do with the statement, why not rather be wronged? Uh, actually, I can think of a whole list of reasons in my self-preservation sense of why I would rather not be wronged. Thank you very much. What we're going to do this evening is look at this passage in layers, three layers to be exact. The first layer is just going to remind ourselves what kind of text this is. The second layer will be to explore the first century situation into which Paul is writing. And the third layer will be what this text is probably saying, maybe saying for you and I. All right? So layer one, what is Paul trying to do here in these six ver- or eight verses of, of uh, chapter six? And actually where I want to begin is with what Paul is probably not trying to do. I don't believe Paul is trying to give us timeless legal advice. And I've got some reasons for that. Three, actually. Um, First, uh, Paul is addressing a specific instance in the life of a church, the church in Corinth in the first century. In this passage, Paul is saying something specific about the courts in Corinth. It's not a prophetic statement about the laws and all laws and all law courts. He's saying something about what it means to be the church, not a timeless statement about how to handle legal matters. My second reason that I don't think Paul is giving us timeless legal advice is that while Paul is clearly against the church taking each other to Corinthian court, we know from other writings that Paul has a pretty high view of the court. He has a pretty high view of government. Read Romans, and and Paul has a pretty high view of of the government's not only ability, but uh, ordination by God to execute justice, right? And, in fact, in the book of Acts, we know that Paul was taken to court by the synagogue in Corinth, right before he planted the Corinthian church. And there in the court in Corinth, Paul receives justice. In fact, that synagogue was shamed in public by the Corinthian court. My third reason why I don't think, if you're not convinced yet, why I don't think that Paul is giving us timeless legal advice is that Paul's not a lawyer. He's not a judge. He doesn't give us enough information about different types of litigation. So this is clearly not a teaching about Paul's comprehensive view of legality, the court systems, and all of that. Well, what kind of text then are we dealing with? Well, this we do know. Paul is obsessed with Jesus. Jesus the creator, Jesus incarnate in the flesh, Jesus on the cross, Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended, Jesus as head over the new people of God, which is the church, Jesus uh, as king over the new creation that is coming one day. Paul is passionate about the church being the church in all of its glory. So what then is the big deal about two members of this church going to court in Corinth? Well, to understand that, we're going to need to peel back that second layer to see hopefully, what Paul might have been seeing. What did it mean to take someone to court in Corinth? Why was Paul so against it? Paul begins chapter 6 dumbfounded as that two fellow disciples of Jesus would take each other to secular court rather than deal with the issue in-house. He calls these courts unrighteous, and he does this, I think, for two main reasons. First, the court officials were not the church. They were not followers of Jesus with their sins washed clean. They weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's point is this. You guys are the church. You have been made new in Christ. 
You have the spirit of Jesus living in your community. You have capable, gifted people in your congregation who could handle a civil court case like this one. Surely they could make a judgment for you on this matter. In true rhetorical fashion, Paul, point, oh, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge angels? And like I said last week in ancient rhetoric, when someone says, do you not know, it means, this is obvious to you guys, you most certainly do know this, and maybe you forgot, and maybe you're ignoring reality, but I'm about ready to tell you what's up. That's what that means, do you not know. Do you not know who you are? You're the church. You're the new people of God. You are the saints. That is the term used to describe Israel before Jesus. Now, Daniel 7 speaks of the Messiah receiving the kingdom of God and the saints, his holy ones, judging the world. The statement about judging angels is most likely derived from Psalm chapter 8 where it talks about human beings being created a little lower than God. What's the important part is that Jesus, because of Jesus, in the future, you and I will be his vice-regents in, new crea- in the new creation. You and I are not just going to be sitting on our backs on a cloud strumming a harp. That doesn't sound very fun. At least could I strum a bass, right? Come on. But we're not just going to be like passive, like some of these pictures in Dante's Inferno or something like that. We are going to be doing stuff with God, new creation, embodied existence in new, in new resurrected bodies. There will be stuff for us to be engaged in. This message uh, is the one that Paul continually makes in his letters. If you had to, you know, I know it's hot, so if you had to like fall asleep for the rest of the sermon, I wouldn't be that upset if you were able to take home this one thing. Paul never says, try harder to become what you're not, okay? This is what I want you to take home. He says, live into who Jesus already declares you to be. It's such a small nuance, you guys, but most of us live like, I've got to be better. I've got to make goals. I've got to try, try, try to do this. Small nuances, guess what? You already are made new in Christ. And when we're not living into that new uh, Christ-likeness, we're really kicking against the goad, we're, we're striving again, we're swimming against the current, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's our natural sense now to be like Christ. You know what that is? You're holy. You're beloved. You're full of the Spirit. You're forgiven, dignified, joyful, faithful, Kind, gentle, loving, compassionate, truthful. You are righteous in Christ. You are generous like your Father who's generous. You are forgiving when you're living in Christ. Part of the family of God the Father, that's you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That and so much more is who you are in Christ. So, in calling these courts unrighteous, Paul is contrasting them with the church. The church in all of its glory ought to be able to handle its own business. But there's another meaning in Paul's description of those Corinthian courts being unrighteous, and that's the simple face value meaning. The courts in Corinth were infamously unrighteous, infamously corrupt. 
There were two types of judges in the Roman colony of Corinth. There were magistrates who were appointed by political figures. So imagine this. The magistrate who is overseeing your court case is appointed by a political figure. Magistrates then are completely open to bribery and corruption. If a politically powerful person is on trial, the magistrate would easily make the case go their way for political favors down the road. Okay? Besides magistrates, there was these guys called duviri. You say duviri because it's fun. Pretty sure it's Latin. Yeah, duviri. These were elected, elected people, so you might think, oh, that's less corrupt than a magistrate would be. A magistrates are appointed by political, by politicians. Uh, duviri are elected from the people. Oh, that's great. No, it's not so great because no one in the bottom 98% of the population was allowed to vote for these guys. And yes, they were always guys. So you've got... <laughs> 2%, uh, the elite 2% held on to their power through family, through bloodlines, through keeping commoners like the rest of us in check. Do you think they ever elected a commoner to be a duviri? No. The role of the magistrate and the duviri were identical. They presided over cases, they would then announce the verdict, and they decided the penalties. Sounds like they kind of hold all the chips, doesn't it? Because they did. They held all the power. And yes, sure, sometimes there were juries involved, but even that system reeked of corruption. In order to be qualified to be a juror, a person had to be a man, a Roman citizen, have property and cash holdings totaling of 7,500 denarii or more. That's a lot of money. Just the qualifications to be a juror excluded half the population on gender, then another significant part of the population on ethnicity, and finally, they, they were discriminated against economically. And then just to add insult to injury, multiple ancient writers speak of a notable amount of people who loved jury duty. Besides Joe Ackerson, I can't think of anyone else here would probably like jury duty, right? And he's a poli-sci guy, so... I, do your civic duty, people. But, I mean, what do you get? You, you get an inconvenience, and you get a stipend that barely covers a fancy cup of coffee or anymore, right? But these jurors um, oftentimes would see jury duty as an extra source of income. They would sign up for it because the corruption, the bribery was so rampant. You could make a pretty penny getting uh, ancient jury duty in Corinth. So the magistrates were corruptible and had almost no checks or balances. The jury was made up of the upper echelon of society and prone to bribery, but maybe the worst part of the system was the inequity of the social class in general. A person of lower status could not take a person of higher status to court. I mean, just think how corrupt that is. A, a son or a daughter could not take a parent to court. A slave could not take a freedman to court. A freedman could not take a, a high-class Roman citizen to court. Now, who's usually doing the wronging? The people in power, right? You couldn't even take someone to court if you were not their equal or their superior. On the other hand, a person of higher standing could and often did take those of lower standing to court. Sometimes they just wanted to crush their spirit. Sometimes someone looked at them the wrong way, and they took them to court and took every last thing that they had. So the system was broken, and Paul wants the church to avoid it whenever possible. Based on what we know about who could sue whom, we're either dealing with a man of higher rank suing or taking a, a man of lower rank to court, or two people of equal rank 
going to court against each other. Either way, in Paul's eyes, it was a loss. On the one hand, it would tarnish the reputation of the church because these court cases didn't happen inside a a, a closed room. You know where they happened was in the public square. Part of going to court or taking someone to court wasn't just to get financial settlement. uh, settlement. In fact, for a rich person, that wasn't a big deal. The big deal was publicly shaming someone. So here you have these two people from a church going to a public hearing, and, you know, the pagans around there are thinking— you might worship a little different than we do, and you don't eat the food, sacrifice idols like we do, but your character, you're just the same. Church, you're no different than anybody else. The public shame on the church is something that Paul definitely wanted to avoid, but I think there's a bigger issue at play here. We have several examples of ancient writings telling us that people would take someone to court for the purpose of publicly disgracing them. Dio Chrysostom, Cicero, Seneca, Juvenal, and others all write that men took each other to court to bring shame on the other person's name. During these cases, the plaintiff could bring all kinds of witnesses. Some of them might be paid, but any of them could say anything they want. So like, let's say Frank takes Jim to court— Frank could get all of you guys on this side to say the most outrageous things about Jim. You don't have to corroborate or prove anything. It's basically you're in public. You say all of these nasty things about Jim. And even if the court gets thrown out, the case gets thrown out, the damage is done. In an honor-shame society, Jim's been shamed publicly. And the only thing to do then is to retaliate by killing someone, right? But if you have all the power, that's not going to happen. Because you could just crush Jim and his little clan. There's one caveat to all of this. I mentioned before how important family was to Roman culture and to the perpetuation of the empire itself. In fact, it was so important that brothers and sisters were not supposed to bring charges on each other. Bruce Winter quotes uh, quotes Cicero, who wrote, "...do not allow brothers to engage in litigation." or to settle their differences in a proceeding involving charges of scandalous conduct. Cicero says, this is not wise. Do not do this. It will damage uh, the family unit and the empire. Now watch what Paul writes. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise person who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that's before unbelievers. Actually, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Did you catch that? Paul calls these men purposefully brothers. The Corinthian church has forgotten who they were. They were family. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They were the children of God, and family don't take family to court. Families may quarrel with each other behind closed doors, but they don't fight in public. They fight for one another in public. And here's the big issue. By taking someone to court in Corinth, you're looking to harm their character. That's why you do it. There's no way around it. By fighting them in the public court system, you're engaging in a public smear campaign that would make our political primaries look tame and well-mannered. 
Can you imagine then two people from the same church going to court against each other, let's say on a Wednesday, all of these insults are flying back and forth. Who knows who wins or loses? But on Sunday, they're supposed to come together in the morning and have communion and hear the word of God proclaimed and give each other the kiss of peace on the cheek, which they used to do back then. Don't worry, I'm not bringing that one back. Side hug. And there's no other church like to run to in Corinth. I mean, Paul just planted, this is the first one ever. So... By taking the, these dudes going to court with each other, either they're both going to have to leave the church or they're not going, one of them's not coming back because you couldn't have this kind of coexisting. I mean, maybe in some context or in a mega church, you know, like someone could sit on aisle 3047 over here and the other person could sit like in the, in the teens over here and maybe not see each other. But we're talking a small church in Corinth. Let's just be a little cliche. I mean, Mediterranean people, passionate people. Like, you don't just like, let's just pretend and be stoic that nothing really happened between us last Wednesday. But can you imagine? I mean, this, this would cause a rift in the church. I can't imagine that happening in their culture, let alone, um, you, you know, this Roman, in the Roman world where honor and shame was the main currency of the day. So Paul's main point, once again, is for the unity of the church. You see this common theme now throughout all of 1 Corinthians. If you take each other to court, you destroy unity, you make reconciliation nearly impossible. I mean, what do you do? Like, hey, I was wrong the other day when I said all those horrible things about your mother in public court, you know. Like, it's really hard to come back from that one. So Paul's saying, avoid this. Now, before we get to the final verse, I want to peel back layer three. How does this then apply to us? Certainly, there is a bit of a disconnect between the court system in first century Corinth and 21st century United States of America. Yes, there is corruption in our system. Let's not be blind about that. Especially if you are the wrong gender or you have the wrong skin color, there's huge inequality in our court system. And yes, today, there's actually very good reasons to take someone to court. An obvious example would be, let's pretend in our church, one of us witnessed a criminal act happening or some abuse of a minor. Like, we're required by the law of the land to, to blow the whistle on that type of activity, and that's a good thing. But this case in Corinth was not a criminal case. That's one thing. The language is clearly, the Greek language clearly tells us it was like a municipal or a civil court case. And you want to talk about saving face for the church. Not to pick on the Catholic church, but that's kind of one of the big ones. What if they would have gotten out ahead on some of the sexual abuse stuff and taken it right to the court, right to the public, gotten out ahead of it, rather than try and hide it and deal with it in-house. That is not that. See, that's why I don't think Paul's giving us timeless examples here. We see crap like that going on. We need to get it out in the open right away, right? That's not something to just, hey, we've got wise people. We can handle that inside. No, we can't. We have laws for that reason. We report things like that. And we could come up with a whole list of hypothetical situations what if taking a brother or sister to court would prevent them from harming another? And there are many nuances that we could deal with. And hopefully, what we would do in a case that's not 
so cut and dry like an abuse thing or, or, or open criminal activity, is we might go to some wise counsel in the church, maybe the elders, uh, maybe some people you trust, and talk it through. Like, here's what I'm dealing with. Like, do you, what should we do? Should we go to the, the law with this or not? You know, maybe we could talk through it, be wise about it. But once we establish the differences between the church or the, the courts in Corinth and Bellingham, and once we throw out the hypotheticals, it really comes down to one thing, and that's the heart. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get at, and that's where I'm going to take this. Are we fighting for each other, or are we fighting with each other? That's the crux of the issue. Are we fighting for each other? Are we fighting for the unity of the church? The story that comes to my mind is the story of Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, of course, is legally bound to Mary, his fiancée. He finds out she's pregnant. He knows it wasn't him. He must assume that she's had an, an affair with someone. How else do you get pregnant? And what most men in that time would have done is wanted to take this woman to the public square and basically say two things. One, I didn't do this. So I'm still a quite an eligible bachelor. My name's not tarnished. Two is, and this is a passionate society, we have so many writings, you guys, outside the Bible of crimes of passion, right? And what most men in this situation would have done is wanted to get revenge. Because what would have happened to Mary is she would have been stripped naked. Her breasts would have been exposed. She would have been taken to the court or to the gate of the city. And then older women would have taken their young daughters on a parade to walk by this woman and say, this is what you don't want to end up like. That's the horrible reality of being a woman caught in this situation in the first century. But Joseph is different. It makes scripture, or he makes scripture because he's declared a righteous man who wants to separate with Mary quietly and privately to help her save face. He is a good, good man. And in doing that, Joseph absorbs the shame. He take, you know, there's whispers going on. And because he didn't take her to the public court, he would have absorbed some of the, the rumors and whispers. He would have brought his own stock down. Now, to Greco-Roman readers like those in Corinth, the story of Mary and Joseph would have been horrifying. Augustus Caesar required divorce. I mean, we think some bad things about Caesar, but he was a lot like, you, you know, a lot like Hitler. Like, when you read some of the stuff of, about Hitler, this guy had, like, no pornography and no drugs or alcohol. I mean, he was, like, squeaky clean. He was almost like the religious right, but more psychotic. And Augustus Caesar did the same thing. He said, you know, our, our, our country is in a bad situation, so what we're going to do is get more religious. And we're going to be more clean, and we're going to be more in the oven. Now, if you were not a Roman citizen and it didn't apply to you, you're going to be a slave, and you're going to build the roads and the aqueducts and all that stuff. We don't talk about that stuff in history. So Augustus was a dirtbag, too. But one of the things he did was require, you know, he required divorce in these situations. Public shaming, humiliating the defendant if it was a woman, not so humiliating if you're a man. Again, it was so unjust. Not to do so, not to bring the woman in your life who committed infidelity into the public square would have brought incredible shame on you and your family. And until Jesus, one's dignitas, one's family dignity, was all a person lived for, 
the perpetuation of your name and your estate. But of course, I'm standing up here preaching because Jesus did come, amen? And he calls us to a different goal and a different way, not just a different way of thinking and not just a different way of acting, but a different way of being. Come follow me. Come put your life's focus on me and my kingdom. Think how radical that is. Your life's focus used to be... I recognize the fact that many of us struggle with life focus. We're 21st century Americans. How many times have we said, what am I doing with my life? Existential crisis. What does God want me to do? We're like one of the first people to have this problem the last hundred years. I mean, used to be my dad was a carpenter. That's kind of what I'm doing. Good or bad, that's kind of how it was. And in this time... You, your, your whole goal was to perpetuate the family and to perpetuate the business or the land or the estate or whatever it was. And Jesus comes in and says, I want you to leave that whole thing that you were taught was important in life and focus it on me. And I want you to follow me. And I want you to focus on this kingdom that you can't quite, you can see it when I'm doing the miracles, but when I go and the Holy Spirit comes, you're not going to see it in full. I want you to focus on that. Come, and you will find Zoe life. You were born with bios life. Life that, of course, is born and has trouble and then breaks down and dies and becomes part of the earth. That's the fate of human beings. But those who have faith in Jesus receive Zoe life, eternal life. Come, find Zoe life in me. Come, all you who are weary and have literally, the Greek says, overburdened yourselves. Anyone overburden yourselves out there? Yeah, how's that day planner? Come, all you who are weary and who have overburdened yourselves, and I will give you rest. Jesus tells of the Father's grace, and in the parable of the two debtors that... uh, Uh, Ryan read earlier, the slave owed this impossible debt. Scholars say that the debt that the slave owed in the parable didn't even exist in the time period Jesus taught it. So Jesus makes up this amount of money that literally, like, there's not that many bills or coins on the face of the earth at that time. Okay, so it's that much money. The slave has no way of paying it back, comes and grovels before the king, and the king shows this slave mercy and grace. (sighs) I'd be, like, heel-clicking out the door. Woo! Can you imagine, have you ever gotten let off for a speeding ticket? I have several times. And you just feel so good for about 10 minutes. You're like, I'll never speed again for like 10 minutes. And then, you know, but like, so this guy gets let off from this impossible debt. And the way that the, the story reads, it might even be the same day where he bumps in to a colleague of his, someone he has no rank over, just another buddy who he loans some money to. The amount he loaned this friend to is a very reasonable sum, about like 100 bucks. And the, that friend says, dude, I will pay you back. I'll make monthly installments. The guy's like, no, no. I'm taking you to court. I'm throwing you in prison. And you know, in a prison in those days, there's no way to make money. That's why it was such a horrible place. So by putting his friend in prison, he could never get paid back. Obviously for him, it wasn't an issue of getting paid back. He was trying to do harm to that man. That man had received such grace from God, but his actions toward his brother showed that his heart was callous and cold and hard. 
That's what taking each other to court is like for Paul. His statement, why not rather be wronged, only makes sense in light of Jesus and the cross. Jesus didn't cling to his rights. Jesus emptied himself, didn't regard equality with God as something to be utilized. That means Jesus had equality with God. He just didn't lean on those rights when he could have. You know, he had the right when he's about ready to go to that cross to call down a legion of angels, like 6,000 freaking warriors of heaven. Like, he had that right. And I know how weak I am. I'd have called up that, I'd have made that phone call. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't utilize his rights because he was on a mission to save you and to save me. Jesus didn't lie down. That's my biggest response to why not rather be wrong. Because I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want nobody getting the better of me. Come on, you know that's in you. But Jesus is so strong. He didn't lie down like a doormat. He fought. And the way that he fought was to fight his doubt that maybe the Father didn't love him when he was hanging there on the cross. Jesus had to fight the temptation to crush his enemies. And Jesus had to fight for us by fighting the impulse to use the world's tactics against the world. That's real strength. If you have received the forgiveness of Jesus and the pardon of the Father, what would it look like for you and me to fight for each other's dignity? To fight the temptation to take revenge and to get revenge on each other? For others, what would it look like to fight the temptation to just ignore that someone has wronged you? You know, for every one of us that loves revenge and loves to be, you know, make everyone know that we're right, there's somebody else who's just like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let it go. In an unhealthy way. Matthew 18, we looked at it last week. Jesus commands you and me to confront each other in a humble and loving way. For still others, what would it look like to fight the temptation of the easy out, of running from one church to another without really fighting for anyone? It's easy to pick up and leave. You know, after a few few weeks, the phone calls stop coming. Hey, where you been? Hey, miss you. And then all of a sudden, you just make up a new story and make up a new community. This is the point of 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. Jesus died to give us new life, made us a family, calls us a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the person sitting right around you right now, the people sitting around you right now, they're worth fighting for. Jesus did. How about you? I'm going to close with a prayer from uh, the book Common Prayer. Pray with me. Lord, free us from our self-deception and attune our hearts to your spirit that we might remember how you humbled yourself and learn to serve one another whatever our disagreements. Amen.